Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I'd like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the editor of the CHEST podcast section. I'd like to thank you for joining us today for what will be a really interesting conversation on the use of bronchoscopy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, We'll be discussing a publication by Dr. Wahidi, and it's a CHEST and AABIP guideline and expert panel report. So as mentioned, today our guest is Dr. Wahidi, the first author of this chess publication. And Dr. Wahidi, maybe you could go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you, Dominique. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, my name is Momin Wahidi. I'm a professor of medicine at Duke University School of Medicine and the director of bronchoscopy and interventional pulmonology uh, at Duke. Great. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. So let's go ahead and get started. And maybe you could uh, start off the conversation on why was this guideline and expert panel report written? Sure. So um, we all know that we have been facing the COVID-19 pandemic, which has swept the globe and has caused significant morbidity and mortality. And it's really been primarily a severe low respiratory tract illness. Um, And and therefore, um, it really uh, brought questions about how to deal with, with patient diagnosis and the role of bronchoscopy in those patients. Um, and we know that transmission is generally uh, via respiratory droplets, but there is airborne transmission uh, when we do aerosol-generating procedures like bronchoscopy. So clinicians were, were faced with many questions about how to protect my patients and serve them best during the pandemics with bronchoscopy as a diagnostic tool. Uh, how do I protect healthcare workers, myself and my team, uh, not to contract the virus while we're, um, you know, performing procedures that are high risk for transmission? And how do we utilize resources and, and help the, the, the larger community and public in making sure that we're using resources appropriately during a pandemic? So you formed a, a panel, um, and maybe you could go ahead and share with us uh, how your panel went about the methodology of creating uh, these guidelines, uh, the literature search, and how, as a group, you uh, came to a consensus. Yeah, so so we actually uh, work closely with just, um uh, guideline Oversight Committee, which is really a wonderful uh, branch of CHEST, uh, uh, and it tries to lead the effort in producing uh, useful and practical guidelines for the clinicians. So we thought this is a good opportunity for collaboration between CHEST and the American Association for Bronchology and Interventional Pulmonology um, to produce such guidelines that are helpful to our clinicians. So we went about it like what, what we've done with other guidelines is we wanted them to be evidence-based. So we, we went to the GOC, the Guideline Oversight Committee at CHEST, suggested the guidelines and formed a panel uh, of experts. And we really wanted to have a multidisciplinary panel to bring all um, 
uh, uh, points of view. So we, we got, uh, we had interventional pulmonologists, bronchoscopists, intensivists, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, as well as the trainees, one trainee from interventional pulmonology fellowship and one trainee from general pulmonary fellowship. And we followed the, uh, the grade methodology. So we, we will, uh, the, the panelist did the literature search, um, and then graded the evidence based on this grade methodology, which is a grading of recommendations, assessment, development, and evaluation. And by the way, two of the panelists, uh, were selected to be the designated methodologists based on their expertise and education. They're bronchoscopists, but they also had, um, uh, extensive experience in guideline development and methodology. So that was important to make sure that we're following rigorous methodology. And then, uh, obviously, if we found evidence, we graded them. If there was, it was adequate evidence, we, we made a recommendation and assigned it a, a, a grade. But if it was, there was no good data, no strong, robust evidence, we relied on consensus and made that a suggestion, not a recommendation. And to get to a consensus, we use the modified Delphi uh, method, which is pretty recognized. And basically, uh, the way it works, you, you the panels will discuss uh, a topic and, and come up with a suggestion, and then everybody will vote anonymously, and you have to have 80% agreement. And if the agreement was not achieved, then you discuss it again, um, and vote again until you get uh, uh, the consensus of 80%. And um, we were able to achieve that. I, I'm very proud of this effort because the, the panelists were so dedicated. We did this in about four weeks uh, during the pandemic, so at the end of March, beginning of April. Uh, we met at night at 9 p.m. Uh, every other night to, to do the literature search and, and discuss the evidence. Uh, it was really a bunch of enthusiastic volunteers that really wanted to produce uh, a guideline document that would help our clinicians. So very importantly, you involved a lot of uh, relevant stakeholders uh, in the decision process, and uh, you're able to formulate these guidelines under very trying conditions. So maybe before we jump into each specific uh, recommendation, you can just give us a broad overview um, of what your findings were. Sure. It really is, uh, you can think of it of, of uh, kind of three areas of interest. One area was what's the role of bronchoscopy in suspected or confirmed uh, COVID infection in, in our patients? Um, how do we perform the bronchoscopy in them? Why would we perform a bronchoscopy? And then how do we protect ourselves? The second one was um, how do we do bronchoscopies in non-COVID patients? How do we protect them, protect ourselves, and do it right? Um, and how do we screen them and make sure they're not infected? Uh, and lastly, there was this issue of... Um, how do you perform a bronchoscopy for urgently for some patients like suspected lung cancer? Can we really postpone it? What are the consequences of postponing a potential cancer diagnosis stage in bronchoscopy on the patient's outcome? Uh, and I would actually add to the first um, sort of area of interest was also when is it a good time to perform a bronchoscopy on a patient who had COVID infection and recovered, when is that safe period to say it's been long enough now that we can perform bronchoscopy safely? So uh, I can uh, kind of go 
uh, one by one uh, through those areas briefly and and describe to our listeners what we found. So the the, the first area again was performing bronchoscopy in suspected or uh, or confirmed COVID nineteen infection patients. So we first wanted to to uh, see how do we maximally protect the healthcare workers um, doing bronchoscopy in those patients and. Really, the main PICO question was, um, is um, an N95 respirator the same or better than the PAPR, the uh, purified, um, uh, powered air purified respirator? Um, And so we wanted to look at both and see... um, which one is better? So, so we we didn't find really any research comparing the two. So this was not uh, evidence based; was consensus based. But if you look at it, N95 respirators, the advantages of them are they're very easy to wear; they're disposable. The disadvantages of N95, you really you need a fit testing. Uh, you need to maintain a tight seal when you wear them, and they're a little uncomfortable. When you look at PAPRs, advantages are that they actually been shown to have higher filtration efficiencies than N95. And you don't need a fit testing. You don't need a face shield over them because they're just one piece and they're reusable. But the disadvantages of PAPRs are that there is significant risk of contamination if donning and doffing and decontamination procedures of those PAPRs are not strictly followed because these are reusable. So you really have to don them and doff them appropriately. You have to clean them and maintain them appropriately. And there's issues with where do you store them and how do you maintain them. So our conclusions at the end of discussion on this question is they're actually uh, equally effective and either of them could be a good protective mechanism for healthcare workers. So if you're doing a bronchoscopy today on a patient who has suspected or confirmed COVID uh, infection, um, you can wear either N95 respirator or a PAPR respirator. Now, to be sure, that's one piece of the personal protective equipment. You have to wear, obviously, a face shield, gown, uh, and gloves um, to, to... to kind of uh, uh, have the full uh, PPE. So that led us to a second question. Well, when is a bronchoscopy indicated in COVID patients, suspected or confirmed COVID infection patients? Why would you do it? Uh, Is there a good reason? And here there was sort of data about, well, maybe BAL is better than um, the nasopharyngeal swab, and we need to do BAL on a lot of these patients. That, as clinicians, concerned us because we just said that bronchoscopy is a is a, a aerosol generating procedure causes potentially uh, uh, there's a high risk of transmission. So we did not want our healthcare teams, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, and technicians to have that high exposure. Uh, so the question here was, is BAL or lower respiratory specimens better than the, the upper respiratory uh, specimens in diagnosis COVID infection? Um, so as you know today, the preferred method is a nasopharyngeal swab with a PCR test, uh, which has a pretty high sensitivity, um, you know, kind of in the mid-70s seven, uh, sensitivity, depending on the study you look at. Uh, but the question was, is BAL better? Uh, so when we didn't find a lot of data, we found one really good study 
from China uh, that looked at uh, 1,070 specimens from 205 patients with confirmed COVID-19 infections. And they did here the PCR test on multiple specimens and found the following positivity rate. BAL had the highest one, was 93%, followed by sputum at 72%, and then it kind of goes down, nasal swab 63%, and, and, and so forth and so on. So I think our finding did find that BAL may be more sensitive than nasopharyngeal swab. However, the risk is too high. So our recommendation is that if you have a patient with suspected or confirmed COVID infections, you should uh, definitely always try the nasopharyngeal swab. That, those have to be uh, obtained first. If then there's a patient that you did the swab and they're negative, but your clinical suspicion is high, uh, particularly in very acute, acutely ill patients, particularly ones in the ICU who are intubated, those we think it's appropriate there to do a bronchoscopy with BAL. And obviously, you have to take all the precautions we just mentioned from PPEs, and um, you, know, you have to wear the N95 or the PAPA plus the shield and the gloves and the mask. So um, those were the um, record suggestions. Again, there's no evidence here. It was consensus. Uh, to reserve BAL for sick patients who clinical um, uh, suspicion remains um, and they're most likely intubated. Um, before uh, I go to the go other ahead. area, yes, I, I want to yeah, give you the opportunity to ask me questions. Yeah, yeah. So um, you mentioned you'd do the BAL or maybe in the ICU. Did you make any uh, recommendations on uh, the type of room that it needed to be performed in? Did it need to be a negative pressure room or... We didn't specifically, but we know that the CDC uh, has recommended that any um, aerosol-generating procedure has to be done in an airborne infection isolation room. And so we mentioned that in the, in the manuscript, but didn't call it out specifically in the recommendation or suggestions. But yes, you, you know, anytime you're suspecting uh, COVID-19 infection, infections, you have to do it in an airborne infection isolation room. Okay, got you. Please go ahead. Yeah, so the second area is, you know, as a pulmonologist bronchoscopist, we still are seeing non-COVID patients. Uh, and again, you know, during the pandemic, we switched to telehealth. and But still, we were seeing patients with lung masses and lung nodule, mediastinal lymphadenopathy. So how, how do we deal with these patients? And... Um, the first question was, if I have a patient like that and I decided to do a bronchoscopy because it's urgent and we can't wait months uh, until the pandemic goes away, how do we protect the healthcare workers? And this is particularly important because, um, because of asymptomatic positive patients. And this, this is now happening uh, when there's community spread of COVID-19. Basically, this is the entire United States. We do have today community spread of COVID-19, and we have asymptomatic positive patients out there uh, that have the infection and they don't know it, and they're spreading the infection to other people uh, unbeknown to them. There was really interesting data from China. There was a study of, from Hubei, Hubei province that looked at 468, uh, 468 COVID-19 transmission events, and 12% of them uh, were pre pre-symptomatic transmission uh, of the infection. And there's also a fascinating study where they looked at 24 asymptomatic infected patients and actually followed them. 
and try to see that what is the median communicable period, which is the interval from the first day they had a positive test to the first day of continuous negative test. And that was approximately 9.5 days. So you can see this is a real risk. I can bring a patient to the bronchoscopy suite, ask them if they have infection, you know, symptoms, and they don't, and I feel good about doing the bronchoscopy, but they might be infected with COVID. So the first question was, we wanted to know, when performing bronchoscopy in these asymptomatic patients uh, in areas where community spread has, uh, of COVID-19 infection is present, should the bronchoscopist and the team wear an N95 or a surgical mask, just a simple surgical mask? And um, we only found really one study from China, but it was really an enlightening study because what they did early, early on in, in the pandemic, they actually uh, randomized uh, two different groups of healthcare workers. One, uh, uh, not randomized, but they compared, I should say. Um, they, they took staff at high-risk units, respiratory unit, infectious disease unit, ICU wards, and gave them N95. And they also cleaned their hands very frequently and took staff in less risky wards, like you know general medicine ward. They, they just wore surgical masks, not N95, and they washed their hands infrequently. And amazingly, uh, despite a high exposure to COVID-19 infected patients in that high-risk group, none of the 278 staff in that, those high-risk units or wards got COVID-19 infection or became infected. But 10 of 213 staff in the, in the less risk group that wore the surgical mask got infected. So to us, that was evidence that N95 was more effective than surgical mask when you don't know the status of the patient. The, the study was not perfect because, again, there was a hand-washing issue. The, the high-risk group, I guess, the, the healthcare, work, healthcare workers washed their hands a lot more, so it could be a confounding variable. But that led us uh, to, to consensus that if you're doing a bronchoscopy in a community where community spread of COVID-19 is present and asymptomatic positive patients are out there, we suggest that healthcare workers in the procedure room wear N95 respirator or PAPR as opposed to surgical mask. And obviously, they have to wear the, the other stuff, face shield, gown, and gloves. So this, would apply, same they, mm -hmm. so this would apply if there's community ahead. spread of COVID-19. If, if a community had got to the point where they found that their rates have decreased to where there's no longer community spread, you would say that this uh, recommendation would fall away? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tough, right, to measure community spread. But, um, I mean, if you look at the United States now, every state has community spreads. When we test out there in the community, they are asymptomatic positive. Now, you can argue there are states like Wyoming or, you know, that have very, still very small rates of uh, COVID-19 infections. Could they avoid the strategy? Maybe. But I think if there's no shortage of PPE, in that community, in that hospital, we would err on the side of using the N95 and PAPR. It becomes more problematic if, um, you know, if you're sort of unsure of the community spread and you have a PPE shortage, um, then that's a more of a challenge. And I'll talk about that because there the strategy might be that you might want to delay as many bronchoscopy as possible and as many procedures in general to save the PPE. So, uh, so I'm going to push back to this so that we can get a, a, a balanced uh, yeah. understanding of this. So, I mean, they asked, um, uh, you, you obviously work at Duke where there's a high yeah. um, density of, of patients and people. Right. 
um, in, in other parts of the state and even in uh, other communities in other states, they're very high-density people and very low-density. And in the low-density areas, they've noticed that there's a very much lower transmission. And sometimes they found that the, it's got to the point where they're allowing uh, communities to go back to normal because the transmission is so low. Um, in those situations, uh, would you still recommend uh, full N95s and PAPRs? Yeah, because I, I think we don't know the real community spread. I mean, unless we test everybody in the community, and as we know, as you know, we have not uh, uh, we have not tested a lot of people in the United States. I mean, we've we've done better recently. We've tested more patients, but it, it's hard to say that community X or Y doesn't have a lot of community spread if we don't test a lot of people. And so. To me, the consequences of have, having a bronchoscopy, a high-risk procedure, on an asymptomatic positive patient, even if it's a small percentage of the community, the consequences are so grave because you're going to potentially infect the healthcare workers, which are taking care of all the patients, and you might infect other patients because if you're prepping the patient and recovering them with no precaution, thinking they, have, they don't have COVID-19, you can transmit it to other patients. So in my mind, we really don't know um, the, the real community rate of infection, and we better err on protecting uh, the healthcare workers. Got you. And then to someone who would push back and say, you know, um, the cost of PPE uh, can be pretty expensive, and also right. th th there are downsides to using it. For example, you covering yourself in uh, all this extra gear that may affect your ability to perform the bronchoscopy. And then some would also say, you know what, um, we're delaying all these procedures for patients, um, and uh, they're going to end up dying because they don't have the procedure done in time. Uh, what would your response to that be? Yeah, I, I think this is a great segue to actually the next question, because the next question said, in those patients, also when you're doing bronchoscopy in asymptomatic patients in this communities that have COVID-19 infection, should we test everybody? Um, should we test asymptomatic patients as pre-procedural screening? Um, and again, we looked at this question. There was no data. Uh, nobody has looked into that or compared anything, uh, testing versus no testing. But um, we, uh, the consensus was that, yes, if you're Prior to performing bronchoscopy in asymptomatic patients in an area where community transmission of COVID-19 infection is present, we suggest testing for COVID-19 infection. So the caveat here, we said this strategy is contingent on the availability of testing, testing in the local setting. So this could be an answer to your question. If, you're, if you have really you know, a shortage of PPE, uh, maybe you don't have shortage of testing and try to test these patients and then in those patients that test negative, you don't need an N95 or PAPR. You still need the face shield, the, the gown, the glove, and, uh, but, but potentially you can decrease the amount of PPE here. The caveat, though, even if you test the patient, these test sensitivity is not 100%, as we just said. And again, a, an adjunct strategy here is to try to do, when you're in a height of a pandemic, you try to do as um, few of bronchoscopy as you can. We actually, in the paper, we published this table um, that categorized bronchoscopies into emergent, urgent, and non-urgent. And we said, don't do the non-urgent. Uh, obviously, the emergent, you have to do them. You have to test the patient where the, 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 the PPEs and urgent are those like, 
the 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 kind of in the middle that you have to use your judgment. But I'll give you examples of urgent bronchoscopy, lung mass suspicious of cancer. That can't wait three months until the pandemic is over. It could wait two weeks until maybe your resources are better in the, in the hospital, or you know, uh, for an object aspiration or hemoptysis, um, suspected infection in immunocompromised patients. Those are indications that can wait a few weeks, but not longer than that. So I think it's a combination based on your local setting and your res- the strains on your resources, PPE and um, testing. You can consider these strategies, testing everybody before procedures um, and also wearing PPEs and, uh, I'm sorry, N95 uh, and PAFA respirators during bronchoscopy in asymptomatic patients. Great. And then, so we'll move on to recommendation five, because I think it's going to get to the crux of this, uh, where you say yeah. in a patient with known or suspected lung cancer, you say the bronchoscopy should be performed in a timely and safe manner. And the question is always going to be, what is timely and what is safe? So maybe you could go ahead and go through uh, that recommendation with us. Yeah, we, we struggle the most with this one. Uh, and, and ironically, this is the one that has uh, the most evidence because people have been studying lung cancer for, for a long, long time. Um, and this issue has come up before. Um, but basically, you know, what we meant with that is you really have to customize it. And um, you got to deploy strategies that would be the most efficient for your patients. So, um you know, we, we looked at things like you have to look at your local resource availability. Um, again, we've heard from our colleagues uh, in New York at the height of the pandemics, they actually shut down their bronchoscopy suites completely. It was not even an option. Uh, they shut down their OR. So even if you diagnose a patient with a lung mass, uh, with lung cancer from a mass, they couldn't do lobectomy. And so when we say timely and safe manner, in those situations, that's not possible. So this is where we talk in our remarks about this is where you actually can uh, refer patients to other centers where you they can have the surgery. In fact, uh, here at Duke, we got calls from New York to say, can I send uh, some patients who need lobectomy to, to your hospital? Um, and I, I think that's a, a fair strategy. You you know, we don't know how long the pandemic's going to last, and, and and especially in areas that were as intense as New York and New Jersey, uh, you could not wait three months to remove that lung cancer. So sending them to other uh, hospitals or cancer centers was appropriate. That's the timely and safe manner. Um, and uh, a- again, what we couldn't determine, and it's a very tough question, what's what's timely? Is it Two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, we, we don't know, and, and we don't, it really has to be customized, and you have to talk to your patients and elicit their preferences, um, and has, our decisions have to be consistent with their values and preferences. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, I think what also found, we found in this discussion is that um, guideline persistent care is better than fast care that's not consistent with guidelines, meaning to decide, well, I don't have resources to do staging with EBIS or Medisnoski. I'm just going to treat them assuming they're stage three or four or two. That's probably worse than just waiting a little bit and making sure to have the right stage and treat them based on their stage and hence, you know, the possibility of sending them somewhere else. So it's a very complex um, topic. Um, I don't know if we completely answered that, but I think we just sort of uh, got to set some principles around it. Gotcha. And then we'll go through your last recommendation, recommendation yeah. six. 
Yeah, so this was sort of uh, in a post-pandemic world, uh, or even as we're recovering from the pandemic, we now have patients who had the infection, had the COVID-19 infection, and they've now recovered. And what is it? What is it? What's the safety period? What is uh, the lag time that we feel comfortable that these patients we can perform bronchoscopy on them? Uh, and feel that it's safe. So again, here we looked at studies, some some really interesting uh, small studies from China, where they looked at patients who recovered and, and symptoms resolved. It really turned out the viral shedding is uh, proportional to the severity of the illness. So if patient had mild disease, they got rid of the virus faster. So some one study showed that 90% of patients with mild disease. Uh, were testing negative by day 10. But if they had severe disease, it lasted a lot more than 10 days. Another study looked at, at to see that um, in some patients, the, the PCR was positive from the respiratory tract up to 37 days. So this is obviously concerning. We, we don't have consistent data on how long do these patients have the virus after they recover, after their symptoms are gone. And when is it safe to say it's okay to bring him back for a bronchoscopy and aerosol generating procedure? So th there was no evidence. Again, it was consensus. And we said in those patients uh, that recovered from COVID-19, we suggest that we um, customize the approach based on what's the urgency of the procedure, the severity of the infection they had, and the time from symptom resolution. Base, we didn't make it a recommendation, but we made it a suggestion in the remark to say, based on how CDC um, uh, approach other things in those patients, like discharge and nursing home and where they go and their care, that it would be reasonable to wait at least 30 days from resolution of symptoms. And at that point, you get uh, PCR testing, if you get two negative tests from at least two consecutive tests, uh, a nasopharyngeal swab collected at least 24-hour parts, we thought that would be safe, potentially. I mean, clearly further research is needed, but this is sort of the, the consensus we had that we thought, based on everything we know and the CDC recommendation, that that 30-day, two negative tests, 24 hours apart, would be the minimal approach to take. Gotcha. Well, so we've been through the six recommendations, and maybe we could just yeah. um, do a brief overview. So what struck me about these six recommendations, as you've alluded to already, five out of those six of them were ungraded and based on consensus opinion um, or consensus, a group of, you know, intensivists, uh, um, interventional pulmonologists, uh, pulmonologists coming together. So the question that we have is, you know, these are guidelines. And we've seen previously in the critical care field where guidelines become mandates or people are penalized for not following certain recommendations when in factual fact they were just guidelines. How should these guidelines be employed? Yeah, no, I mean, we fully acknowledge um, in the in the manuscript that the, the weakness is that the overall paucity of robust and direct evidence um, to inform this guidance, right? So I think we know that it was mainly um, consensus-based, and we fully acknowledge that. Um, and, and, and that means that this is a guidance document. Um, this is a document that clinicians looking for answers should read and take those uh, recommendations and adapt them to their local situation. And, uh, I mean, there is no way we can um, 
keep up with everything that's there's so many publications on COVID as you know that this this document was finished in in the first part of April between now and April there's been a lot more publication on this issue so we think this is really more of a living document that we want to update in the future I don't know what the ideal period six months or you know how however long COVID pandemic lasts for us we might need to update it again you got to think that this is a living document and that some of these recommendations, suggestions might change based on new evidence. But we wanted to think of this as a foundation of, of guidance, if you will. Um, you still have to use your judgment. You still have to adapt these to your local practice. Um, I, I wouldn't think these are sort of like holy recommendations that you have to abide for 100%. I think they're guidance. Gotcha. And then uh, you alluded to this already. So, um, uh, a, a lot of the data that you were had available um, to you in early March was uh, from China. There's obviously uh, the United States has had its experience of uh, COVID-19. And as you mentioned, several publications have come out. Um, some would argue that it would be the responsibility of the uh, guideline panel to update these every six months, especially since we'll be going into the winter period with both the flu and COVID-19 expected to be coming up, and that these recommendations should be updated based on available uh, evidence and that we shouldn't wait a year or two years after the pandemic's already over. Uh, what would your response to that be? Absolutely. I would anticipate us uh, getting to back together sometime in the fall, uh, mid-fall, to say, let's look at those again. And maybe there'll be new questions. I mean, I, I don't think we ask every relevant question. I think we, within the time constraints we have, we wanted to sort of the most relevant questions. I think there are other questions out there, and we really need to look at the data. I'm aware of more data, especially on sort of the role of BAL and bronchoscopy. There's a lot, I'd say, some innovation out there about safety. I didn't see a lot out there about, you know, healthcare uh, worker protection with the N95 and other respirators. I think it's more about diagnosis and, and uh, some innovation around maybe protection, some new things. But certainly those, we want to look at those and um, we we would love for CHESS and ABIP to afford us the opportunity again in the fall to to update, hopefully fall or winter to update these uh, this, this guideline statement. Gotcha. And then, uh, Moment, you mentioned the fact that this was done uh, in the space of four weeks with uh, very little data available at the time. So there are uh, several limitations that you mentioned in the uh, manuscript. Maybe you could just go ahead through each one, because I think it's important for our chess audience to be aware of these limitations um, so that uh, um, when these recommendations are followed or assessed or implemented, that they are cognizant of uh, what the drawbacks are or what they need to be aware of. Yeah, sure. So uh, I think the timeline, just to, to be more exact, was second half of March and first uh, half of April. So it was... Uh, um, you know, there was a time where you, you're right. We had more data from China, less data from um, the United States. We we started seeing some emerging data from uh, Europe, but it was mainly from China. So um, again, as I said, the paucity of data is a, is a weakness. So this is less evidence based and more consensus based. Um, I, I just mentioned that you know there there probably were important questions that we had to admit because of time constraints to, you know, to accomplish this in four weeks or so, we couldn't answer every question. And finally, typically in, um, 
methodology of these evidence-based um, documents, typically everything gets duplicated. Like if I perform a, a, a literature search on, on a PICO question, typically there's another panelist that would also do it, and we will crisscross our finding to make sure we didn't miss any uh, you know, single data evidence to study out there. That was not done. We just relied on individual panels because of time constraints to, to do the research, bringing back to the whole panel uh, and committee. On the other hand, I would say the strengths were that we uh, followed the methodology of CHEST and, and guideline oversight committee. Uh, this is the great methodology that CHEST has been really well known in producing high quality document following that methodology. And I think in my mind, the second really important strength was that, that multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary panel because other colleagues, you know, informed us, challenged us, you know, from ID, infectious disease, to intensivist, to trainee, to RT, because, you know, the bronchoscopist, interventional pulmonology, you think would dominate this conversation, but actually it was really balanced discussion, lots of um, inputs and, and healthy discussion. So I think that was really uh, a strength of this document. Yeah, I agree. You, you had a really uh, great panel and uh, uh, numerous strengths to uh, this manuscript. And hopefully, um, I mean, it's June now, so, so hopefully uh, before September, uh, before October, we'll have updated guidelines that address uh, those important limitations that you mentioned. Um, I do want to draw the audience's attention, and you had mentioned this um, uh, table too, the urgency of bronchoscopy procedures. And maybe you could just go through that briefly with us. Um, just so that our audience is aware, you know, what is an emergent bronchoscopy? What is an urgent bronchoscopy? And what is a non-urgent bronchoscopy? Because this sometimes comes up as a, an issue of contention as to whether or not this patient needs this bronchoscopy done within the week or it can be held off until uh, next month. Um, so maybe just the uh, emergent bronchoscopies, then urgent ones, then non-urgent. Sure. And, and uh, I mean, as a disclaimer, by no means this is an exhaustive list. I'm sure we list some, left something out, but this was sort of um, the collective thoughts of the panelists on the most common indications for bronchoscopy. And, and I think actually this table uh, uh, got some attention because people were using it because... Um, uh, you know, as you may know, in some institutions where the pandemic really hit hard, um, the, you couldn't do a non-COVID procedure without sort of a committee or a panel in your institution approving it. And uh, uh, this was a good resource to say this is supported by uh, national uh, guidelines and evidence. So the emergent bronchoscopy um, the list we came up with was actually short. Um, it's uh, severe or moderate symptomatic tracheal bronchial stenosis. So somebody that's really symptomatic from a tracheal stenosis related to a cancer or benign air, uh, non-malignant airway disease or, or artificial airways, but they're symptomatic. And, and obviously these patients, you cannot wait. You have to intervene and it would be cruel you know, with their symptoms not to do anything. Um, Symptomatic central airway obstruction, uh, you know, not just stenosis, but could be a tumor or a mass or a polyp uh, um, blocking the central airway, like trachea, main stem bronchi, bronchi medius. Massive hemoptysis, obviously, that's an, an emergency in the ICU. And then finally, migrated stent. If I put a stent um, um, in, in a location in a bronchus and it migrated, it has to come out. It cannot be left there. That's an emergency. 
for urgent, it was more around really lung cancer. So I have a patient with a lung mass, highly suspicious, or lung nodules, highly suspicious for cancer, or mediastinal adenopathy, highly suspicious of cancer. Uh, those needed to be addressed urgently, as I said, you know, weeks, few weeks, maybe. Um, uh, again, you know, some people said 10 to 14 days. I don't think we know, but you got to use your judgment. A whole lung lavage was considered urgent um, for, for the patients who needed. Uh, I mentioned foreign object aspiration. You really can't leave it there for too long. Mild to moderate hemoptysis. We got to investigate the cause of that hemoptysis. And finally, suspected pulmonary infection in immunocompromised patients like bone marrow transplant, uh, cancer patients, if they have infiltrate. Hopefully, you rule that COVID with a nasopharyngeal swab first. And then uh, those are the patients that you might want to do the BAL to you know, confirm it's not COVID and then find other things like fungus and, and microbacteria. And then finally, non-urgent bronx, those are the ones that can definitely wait and potentially wait months um, you know, mild tracheal bronchial stenosis, patient not symptomatic. Uh, suspicion of sarcoidosis, which you don't need to immediately treat. Um, um, those can wait. Uh, chronic interstitial lung disease. Many of those don't need bronchoscopy, but if you decide they need bronchoscopy, those can wait, um, a, a, you know, a period of time. Suspicion of uh, chronic infections, specifically mycobacteria, like uh, MAI, um, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection. Some of the newer therapy we're doing, uh, like bronchoscopic lung volume reduction with valves, this is definitely not urgent, and actually that can require a lot of resources, like the patient can have a pneumothorax after the valve, so those will take hospital beds and potentially ICU. Bronchial thermoplasty for severe asthma, that can wait. And then lastly, things like evaluating chronic cough or tracheobronchomalacia or, um, you know, clearing of mucus, um, that failed physical therapy. So those were all considered non-urgent and can wait. Gotcha. I think you've given us a really good overview on that moment. So, um, Moen, we're getting towards the end of this podcast, and you've uh, provided uh, really uh, great informative information to our, um, our audience here. So um, before we close up, um, I just want to ask you, um, do you have any key messages for the chess community? And is there anything that we didn't cover in this podcast that you think our audience should know? I'll give you the last word. Thank you, Dominique. I, I think um, the message is, as, as we emphasized, uh, is that, again, this is, this is not perfect. These are not perfect recommendations. You've got to really look at them uh, uh, and adapt them to your local situation. I think the message is, um, you know, safety first to your patients and to yourself and the healthcare workers. So uh, we want to do the procedure when it's indicated. We want to do it for the right indication. Um, and we got to protect ourselves uh, from COVID infection because the worst outcome is also losing healthcare workers to infections and our inability to take care of all of our patients. And that, um, you know, when we, we want to take care of non-COVID patients too, uh, you mentioned briefly that there's consequences of um, not taking care of those patients who don't have COVID. Uh, we've seen publications on the consequences of, of not continuing our regular care of those patients. So we want to do that reasonably. Uh, we want to do it without constraining the resources of taking care of the COVID uh, patients. And, 
you know, we, we provide some guidance to, to say how we take care of those patients and what's the urgency. So I hope that the, our readers and, and listeners today uh, would find these helpful and uh, find them applicable to their patients and, um, you know, help them take care of uh, patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. I agree. Safety first while providing excellent care. A very big thank you to Dr. Wahidi for a great conversation and a very big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper and this is a chess podcast.